Good morning and welcome to 30 Minute Theology, where we discuss the basics of Catholic belief and practice. With me today is Father Daniel. Father Daniel, how are you doing? I'm well, John. Good to see you. How are you? I'm doing very well this morning. It's a nice rainy day here in northwestern Montana, which uh, we like rain at this time of year. So today we'll be discussing belief in the Holy Trinity. And uh, before we jump into something which seems audacious and insane of us to try to teach, I would just like to point out, uh, in case the listener hasn't noticed, Father Daniel, you're a Ukrainian Greek Catholic priest. Exactly. Will you say just a little bit about that before we dive into our topic? (laughs) Yes. So uh, we say Ukrainian because uh, our patron... Our patronage, so to speak, uh, comes through the Ukrainian people, the the ancient faith that was delivered to uh, the Rus, the ancient Kievan Rus. Uh, but they they received this faith from the Greek-speaking church, the eastern half of the Roman Empire at that time. And so I celebrate the liturgy that comes to us through the Greek language, liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom of Saint Basil, and uh, and I inherit therefore that uh, uniquely Greek or Eastern theological approach. So, uh, yeah, Ukrainian, Greek, Catholic. We get all those titles in there. (laughs) I think that's so cool. Um, One of the things that I found compelling and uh, compelled my conversion to Catholicism is the sort of cultural diversity within uh, theological unity and institutional unity Yes, that we have... um, we have different ways of talking about the same mysteries. Uh, the same central mysteries that we share as part of our faith, we can discuss with different language. Different paradigms. And, that's right. Yeah. And I encountered that in my time at <clears throat> Protestant Divinity School, that you read someone like um, St. Augustine of Hippo, who's a Latin-speaking theologian from uh, 4th and 5th century. Right. And then you, at the same time, read contemporary to him, uh, St. Gregory, St. Basil, mm-hmm. St. Gregory up in what is Asia Minor. Mm-hmm. You hop forward a century later, you read St. John Damascus uh, in the Holy Land, mm-hmm. and they speak so differently, and yet say, share the same faith. Yes. So before we jump into the Holy Trinity, I just wanted to remind readers that within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, not all Catholics are Roman. We are united under the Pope of Rome, but we have uh, different liturgies. We share common sacramental life, Mm -hmm. but um, we share same beliefs, but we do have different, more poetic ways of speaking about these things. Absolutely. It's a kind of, I think, as a kind of prism, right? We have the one truth uh, of God, the one truth of, of the Trinity, we could talk about multiple truths, and then when that truth shines upon uh, the church, it's reflected through that as a kind of prism, and it's, it's, I wouldn't call it broken up, but it's expressed in a variety of colors, if you will, and uh, that's a beautiful thing and allows us to be able to get, uh, see something from a different, a different angle, a different side helps enrich it. That's right. Well, speaking about something that we see from angles, let's talk about the mystery of the Holy Trinity. What is the mystery of the Holy Trinity? 
Well, dare we talk about such a thing? <laughs> uh, the Trinity is a mystery because it's something that transcends uh, where uh, reason can take us. We need divine revelation in order to get to that place. But the Trinity is what God has revealed to us about, uh, Is it? do we say his inner life? Yeah. Their inner life? This is the great mystery, the challenge of speaking about something, this unity in diversity. Um, so. That's right. Um, so in this podcast, we've talked a little bit about revelation. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the unity of faith and reason and how faith and reason are not in some form of competition with one another, but are actually interdependent on one another. Right. We talked about the goodness of human reason, how the truths of religion are consonant with religion. Uh, they're not irrational, which would mean that they're incompatible, but they are sometimes super rational, which exactly. means that the um, transcend what could be known by reason alone. And this is part of God's gracious gift of revelation to just speak directly to us through um, through direct speech mm-hmm. and ultimately through the incarnation of his son. We've talked about Jesus being the fullness of divine revelation and the mediator of divine revelation. So after I define one term, let's look at Jesus himself. First off, we've been throwing around this word mystery, which is something if you have a Bible, it's all, all throughout your Bible, especially in the writings of St. Paul. Yeah. And um, a mystery is not like a code we solve. It's not some sort of strange Bible code where we look for the words Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. and Ecclesiastes. It's also not something which we know nothing of. A mystery is an infinitely deep reality mm-hmm. so that as our knowledge grows of the mystery, we nonetheless have not exhausted it. Here's how the First Vatican Council defines a mystery. It says, a mystery is that which not only cannot be discovered by reason alone, but that which when revealed remains, quote, hidden by the veil of faith and enveloped, so to speak, by a kind of darkness. So, for the sake of this podcast, we are not going to explain the mystery of the Holy Trinity. A mystery <laughs> cannot be explained, but nonetheless, it can be rationally spoken of. Mm-hmm. One of my... Um, <clears throat> Lutheran professors in seminary said it this way when we were talking about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. He said theology is not the, like, modern science of God. It's the language of worship. Mm -hmm. That ultimately theology serves doxology, Mm -hmm. that we would worship God appropriately. Anything you want to add to that, Father Daniel, before we look at Jesus? Yeah, I mean, the, the mystery we see, it, it really comes to us um, <clears throat> beginning in the Old Testament, in which we see God revealing himself in all these kind of powerful, intense sort of ways. We think of the Exodus, uh, the pillar of smoke, uh, of fire at night. We see the, the cloud hovering over the mountain, which Moses ascends into the, this kind of darkness. Yeah. We see God reveal himself in all kinds of ways in which there's a, a, a sort of blindness, right? You think of uh, smoke and light. They're kind of blinding or an ascent mm-hmm. into a cloud. It's You lose vision. You can't see the terrain as well. But yeah. there's a real encounter that takes place 
in the midst of this thing. Something very substantive is reaching out and touching you and you're kind of reaching out and, and, and touching it, so to speak. <clears throat> so I think those are, those are fantastic ways. They're biblical ways in which we see the Trinity. Yeah. So it's, it's not embracing uh, blankness. Uh, it's, it's embracing something that you can't totally comprehend with the mind, but there's great substance to it, an encounter. That's right. Um, what you said reminds me, there's a really good article titled, Does the Old Testament Teach the Trinity? Mm. by the deceased Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen. Mm-hmm. And he demonstrates that although uh, the fullness of the doctrine of the Trinity is only revealed in the incarnation of Christ himself, it is all throughout the Old Testament. Absolutely. That the Old Testament is constantly begging the question of, who is God? Mm-hmm. Um, and from a historical perspective, Judaism does not actually become anti-Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. It doesn't deny the reality until Christians affirm it with clarity. If you look at what scholars call Second Temple Judaism, so mm-hmm. Judaism leading up to and surrounding the life of Christ himself, mm-hmm. there's a lot of speculative Jewish thought. Exploring question in the Old Testament like, who is Abraham talking to when he's speaking to God? Mm-hmm. We could think about when the angels appear, right. the oaks of Mamre, mm-hmm. and he intercedes for um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. We can think about when Abram uh, famously offers up Isaac. Mm-hmm. There's this ambiguity about him speaking to, quote, an angel or a messenger of the Lord, but all of a sudden he's speaking to the Lord. And the more you look at it, the more confusing it gets, and it begs the question, how many persons is God. Right. So now that we've kind of highlighted the mystery, let's look at Christ himself. So if Jesus is both the fullness and meteor of divine revelation, that means that Jesus both teaches and in his own person reveals the inner life of the Trinity. So let's get more concrete and let's look at Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to go immediately to Christ's incarnation yes which incarnation uh is a fancy theological word for jesus choosing to be human his in his enfleshment we might say in english right? that's right when he takes on flesh yeah jesus is the <laughs> only human being who chose the time and manner of his birth and parentage um so there's something different about um jesus and us because jesus is a pre-existent divine person who chooses to assume human nature. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is also the co-eternal Son of God, who Son. is God with the Father. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And um, we see this clearly in the angel Gabriel's um, interaction with the Virgin Mary. Right. If you have ever watch Charlie Brown Christmas. You should be familiar with this, where it's read in the King James. Uh, But the Virgin Mary is promised by the angel Gabriel Mm -hmm. that she will conceive and bear a son, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Mm -hmm. She asks, how will the Spirit of the Most High will overshadow her? So in Christ's very... um, occurrence existence to us as a human person Mm -hmm. um he is a divine person who chooses to be human and he is the son of his father in heaven and his becoming human occurs 
by the Holy Spirit. So in the very message of Christmas, we have the mystery of the Trinity mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, whereas we were seeing, for example, with the angels, you just mentioned them at the Oak of Mamre, there's this, just what kind of a relationship that do they have? We see a plurality, um, but they're spoken to in, uh, as an individual. And then all of a sudden, at the moment of the conception of our Lord, the Annunciation, we call it, uh-huh. we have much more clarity already. We see a relationship between three divine beings. Uh-huh. This thing that we've known as Yahweh, the Lord, mm-hmm. all the names of the Old Testament, suddenly reveals himself in a very concrete sort of way as a relationship between three beings. That's right. One, in essence, we're going to learn from, from, uh, uh, from the church eventually so I suppose we more properly should say one being. One being uh, and with three, three persons. And three persons, exactly. Three persons interacting. That's right. So let's look at one more, uh, an episode from the life of Christ, his baptism, mm-hmm. uh, which is very profound, and we could spend a year talking about <laughs> everything involved in it. But if we look at the moment of Christ's baptism himself, Jesus, who is the Son of God in human flesh, mm-hmm. he... Uh, consents to be baptized with water as an act of humility. And um, what's the word? Not just association with us, but identification with us. Yeah, identification with us. Um, So what happens is Jesus is baptized. Well, the Father in heaven speaks. Mm -hmm. His affirmation of the Son confirms Jesus' identity as his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is being baptized, the Father is speaking, and the Holy Spirit is descending Mm-hmm. upon Jesus. So we've got two moments where we clearly see God acting as one being in a relationship of three persons. Mm-hmm. Christ is being in this moment kind of anointed, so to speak, mm-hmm. as uh, the voice the, in, the voice of the Father, right? Mm-hmm. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's right. We get these phrases, so... He's, uh, Christ is emerging as king in this context as well, as Lord of creation as well, because the water uh, is being changed in the Eastern tradition. Mm-hmm. The liturgy of Theophany, in which we celebrate our Lord's baptism. Which means the manifestation of God. Manifestation of God, exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, we do the great blessing of the waters, in uh-huh. which we take earthly water, fallen water, and by the power of Christ, uh, through what he accomplishes in baptism, we rebuke the spirits that have been given power over nature through man's mm-hmm. fall. And so we're seeing also a beautiful restoration of the Trinity in the midst of creation itself, right? If mm. you look at an icon, a Byzantine-style icon of this feast, you'll see these little men in the water riding beasts, riding dragons. And this is these yeah, are the that's spirits right. of the world, right, which have, have been given power by the fall, demons, if you will. Mm-hmm. And Christ's baptism is rebuking them, where we're storing nature to its original order in which the Trinity is manifest fully through all. It has a possibility of being manifest fully through all of creation. Very powerful. Yeah, that's awesome. And if anyone is getting excited that we're talking about spiritual realities like demons, uh, just hang on for two more weeks. It'll get far more weirder and exciting. <laughs> 
so um, we see this revelation of the Trinity in Christ's person, his birth, his baptism. We also, Christ teaches it. Uh, for instance, the Our Father. Hmm. Uh, how often throughout the Gospels, more than I could count, does Jesus refer to God as his Father? Right. This is actually really controversial with the religious leadership in John's Gospel. And Jesus doesn't back down from it. He seems to make a point. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the Jewish leadership understands clearly that Christ is making himself equal to God by referring to God as his Father personally, mm-hmm. that he's making a statement not just of God's feelings towards him, but he's actually making a statement about his essence. Mm-hmm. Um, an ontological statement. That's right. In an analogous way that Ezekiel being my son, I'm talking about my oldest son now, um, him being my son says something about an essence that he and I share, mm. um, which is not the same as what essence is with God, but it is an image of it. Mm-hmm. Second, uh you read John chapter 14 through 16, uh, but it pops up all in other places in the gospel as well. How many times Jesus talks about his father sending the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. um, about himself uh, promising to send the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. to those who receive him as God's son. And uh, lastly, uh, all my Southern Baptist friends will know the Great Commission and Jesus' command to baptize in the name mm-hmm. of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So we see throughout the Gospels and Holy Scripture that Jesus reveals the Trinity in his person, the mystery of God's being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. um, As one God, as well as teaching this in his ministry. So in in order to better understand this sacred mystery, what are some wrong ways of understanding (laughs) the, the mystery? I think that oftentimes uh, we learn the right position by learning false interpretations. So let's look at some false ways of uh, understanding this mystery. Father Daniel, chime in if if I mispronounce any of these ways or mispresent them. The first heresy is the the heresy of Sabellianism. I'd like to point out that all of these heresies began very early in the church. And they all occur as sort of like mathematical ways of making this make sense to us. Mm-hmm. So whenever we reduce the mystery of the Trinity to something that makes sense, like can be fully comprehended, mm-hmm. you know you've entered heretical territory. <laughs> the first of these is Sabellianism, the belief that God has three parts mm. that add up to equal one God. Mm. So it's like Jesus is one third, Spirit is one third, Father is one third, and together you get one. The whole. Yeah, the hmm. whole. Hmm. Uh, before we go on to the next, why is that bad theology? Well, because it it, uh, it means that God is subject to division. It means that there's not really wholeness in him. I mean, we could talk about, these are kind of philosophical ways of, of thinking about God, but... Um, yeah, I think it's it's the problem is simply that we're subjecting him to ways in which we understand, like you said, mathematics. Uh, it's it's subjecting the mystery to some kind of human rationale. That's right. So this would be um, oftentimes analogies get a bad name. 
I mean, God created creation from a Christian perspective to be analogous, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. to reveal him. But as Mm -hmm. St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us, analogies have a greater greater amount of dissimilarity than they do of similarity. Mm -hmm. So for the similarity, we encounter an analogy between God and creation, we encounter greater dissimilarity. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong with picking up a three-leaf clover and thinking about the Trinity. However, if you do reduce the mystery of the Trinity to a three-leaf clover (laughs) and say without, like, these petals add up to equal one clover, we're getting a little bit overly literal here. Absolutely. And reductionistic. Absolutely. So that's Sabaeanism, the fact, the the erroneous belief that we can kind of divide up and add up God and equal God in that way. But then there's a heresy of modalism. It's related to Sibelianism. It is. Mm -hmm. And modalism is belief that God basically wears three masks. Mm -hmm. And depending on the manner in which he's interacting with us, Mm -hmm. he presents himself Mm -hmm. as Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. Right. For some particular motive that he has. Now, why is that a dangerous belief? Oh, well, you, you can talk about the this question of who suffered on the cross, uh-huh. who dies on the cross, right? Does the, does the Father, does the Godhead somehow die on the cross? Is that a possibility? Yeah. And so if you, uh, if you think about that, you have the one God apparently suffering. We call that, I think, patropassianism That's right. or something like mm-hmm. this. I've forgotten these uh, these. Uh, terms and these heresies i haven't talked about them in a while but yeah i mean it's it's a bizarre concept if you think about it yeah i think another problem with this is it introduces the question of deception into divine revelation mm-hmm. this is different than accommodation accommodation is the belief that god reveals himself to us in ways we can handle right. modalism goes far beyond that by saying this is not actually reflective of who god is mm-hmm. it's just a scheme he employs mm-hmm. which uh really introduces ethical questions about God's nature, mm-hmm. as well as questions of the reliability of divine revelation. Absolutely. Which, if divine revelation is not reflective of God, there, there's so many issues there. Right. I'll just leave it hanging there. But I want to come back to this. Um, if this sounds esoteric and weird, let's bring it back home to Scripture. The Apostle John, in John chapter 4, states that God is love. St. Augustine, he doesn't invent this, but I think he is the first to articulate so clearly from the Apostle John's statement of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Why does the Apostle John not say that God is loving, but God is love? Mm-hmm. Because he's saying God is verb, mm-hmm. and that verb is love. So just to break that down, the Apostle John in sacred scripture is identifying God's being with act. And I've said before that we as persons have discontinuity between our being and act because we're inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all hypocrites. It's just a question of how much. The goal is to reduce it as much as possible. We're also unfolding over time. We, we move from potentiality to actuality, right? That's right. And God is fully ever-present, ever existing so he is act we say he is act right that's right so god is love for god to for to have the act of love you have to have 
three things. You have to have a lover, mm-hmm. the one who is loved, and the act of love. Mm-hmm. Well, if God has been revealed to us through the Apostle John as the act of love, mm-hmm. and of course he roots us in the concrete action of Jesus Christ, the supreme revelation of God, as paradoxically as it sounds, is Jesus on the cross, God's act of self-giving love. Well, this act of self-giving love reflects God's actual essence, that God exists eternally mm-hmm. as lover, beloved, and love. Mm-hmm. Now, he would identify the lover as the Heavenly Father who begets the Son, who is the Beloved, mm-hmm. whom Scripture names as the Beloved. What does the Father say at his baptism and at Christ's transfiguration? Right. Behold, my Beloved Son. Right. Um, and this is in Paul's epistles as well, Ephesians. It speaks about us being chosen in the Beloved. Mm-hmm. Romans 5, 5 says that we have hope because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given us. Mm. So what St. Augustine does is he simply looks at the consistency of language across sacred scripture paired with Christ's self-giving in the cross. And this is a revelation of God's actual identity. Absolutely. Is love. We're not making this up, so to speak. I mean, I, th- I think it would be reasonable for somebody to, to come along and say, how do you know you're not being just like the Sibelians? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think all of this is a uh, got some cleaning going on here. <laughs> all of this is uh, is a response, and, and the fathers of the church really do, I think, a good job of this, where they're they're protecting against problematic ways in which people are putting a system over the top of sacred scripture. Mm-hmm. They're saying, no, we're not attempting to exhaust the mystery of God. We're not saying we understand it, but we are going to respond in appropriate ways to what scripture, divine revelation, is saying about God. So God is love, God is trinity, etc., etc. As we, as we get. That's right. So if we um, hold to a heresy that either denies God's unity Mm-hmm. On the one hand, so let's say basically divides him up like Sabellianism. Right. Or if we just become straight up polytheists and we treat them as three separate beings, mm-hmm. we're denying the reality of God's identity as love. Exactly. Likewise, if we reduce God to some sort of monad who wears three masks, well, if you're in love with yourself mm-hmm. in that degree, we have very disparaging psychological terms for that. Absolutely. God is neither a narcissist. Nor is he um, uh, a a chain of beings. Mm -hmm. God is love itself. Mm -hmm. And if we back down from that theologically, we are denying a fundamental reality of who God is as well as salvation Mm -hmm. as well. Because God has destined us to be partakers of his love. Absolutely. That gets back to... uh... I mean, the, the question of who Christ is is always related to the question of the Trinity. That's why you have Christology and uh, Trinitarian theology basically being worked out in the, in, you know, the first councils. Mm-hmm. Because questions about who Christ is uh, will always bear upon the Trinity. Is he a member of the Trinity? Full, equal, consubstantial, these kinds of terms. Is the Holy Spirit? And again, it's related to that soteriological motive, which we talked about in the past uh, episodes. If you, 
if you change the way in which you understand God, you risk salvation itself. If Christ is not a member of the Trinity, full and consubstantial with God, how can he actually save us, for example? How is mm-hmm. he not just another another being? The inner life of the Trinity is very challenging to talk about accurately. Uh-huh. But in the Trinity, uh, what is going on with the, the life of God? Well, God is giving himself fully and completely to Christ. That breath that uh, he does that with being the Holy Spirit, that's then shared back with the Father, right, in this kind of pattern. Mm-hmm. So you see that uh, the unity is being created out of the sharing of divinity from God the Father. Yeah. In this kind of reciprocal relationship with the Son through the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. Then we could talk about the uh, the energetic, the processional life, the uh, the life of God in creation in which he reveals himself. But the pattern has to remain the same. Yeah. What God is doing in his inner life really needs to be connected with how God's revealing himself in the life of creation. That's right. And if God communicates himself to us, then God is the communicator. What is communicated? Mm-hmm i.e. the content of communication and the means of communication. Mm-hmm. So a way of understanding revelation is that God reveals himself mm-hmm. to us by his son through his spirit. Through his divine spirit, yes. Yeah, I would just uh, give a word of, of warning to anyone wanting to talk about Trinitarian theology. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Simply uh, that the church at times uses extremely technical terms. We can look at those in the uh, ecumenical councils or the documents of the church, uh, some papal uh, documents, these types of things. Those technical terms are not ways in which we are defining God. In other words, um, we think that we have this mystery somehow made utterly clear. These uh, definitions that we use, which are binding upon us, especially if they've been dogmatized, mm-hmm. they're ways in which we're protecting uh, from wrong understandings of the Trinity. So, you know, in our day-to-day life, I hear theologians, pastors, myself included, we'll talk about uh, certain analogies. I mean, St. Irenaeus, early French saint, uh, hierarch of the church. One of my favorites. He's a remarkable man, great theologian. Uh, But he talks about the Trinity. He talks about Christ and the Holy Spirit being the two hands of God, right? This is an analogy. And we can do that, but we always must hold uh, all of these words, all of these phrases with a kind of uh, healthy, at a kind of healthy distance, a kind of healthy tension. Of course, the dogmatic definitions of the church are truly reliable. We fall back on those always, but just be careful, you know? That's right. Thank you. Uh, Before we give resources you remind me father daniel of some great uh words from saint gregory of nazianzus mm. a beautiful brilliant and poetic church father i'm reading from his uh this is from the saint vladimir series these are five sermons he gave mm-hmm. two letters the popular the... patristic series is that what that is john it is yeah this is a cheap little book and it's well printed and it's beautiful uh, it's titled on god and christ and St. Gregory of Nazianzus, in helping the church uh, develop its doctrine of the Trinity, he combated two opposite errors. Mm. One is that we know nothing of God. That language is utterly, not simply um, inadequate, but like obsolete. It's incapable. 
mm-hmm. of speaking of God, which presents all sort of questions about, well, where's the point of religion? Yes. How that, that makes very little, or if any, sense of Christianity. The second error is this, that if we have the right words, we know exactly what they mean. Mm-hmm. So it's really the theological error of pride that you're describing. Right. Daniel. So um, in between those two opposite errors, there's something called an analogical understanding of language. So when we speak of God the Father, we know partly divine fatherhood mm-hmm. through earthly fatherhood. Right. Earthly fatherhood does not fully reveal the fatherhood of God, mm-hmm. no matter how wonderful our earthly fathers are, mm-hmm. nor is it completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. And images like words reveal God without containing an exhaustive content. Exactly. The very depths of God. So I'll end with this quote from him. This is St. Gregory of Nazianz speaking to fellow theologians. If you have traversed the air and reckoned up all it involves, come now with me. Touch heaven and things celestial. Faith rather than reason shall lead us, if, that is, you have learned the feebleness of reason, to deal with matters quite close at hand and have acquired enough knowledge of reason to recognize things which surpass reason. If so, it follows that you will not be a wholly earthbound thinker, ignorant of your very ignorance. Wow. Father Daniel, are there any recommended resources for someone who wants to deal with this mystery, central mystery of our faith more? You know, it depends, John, on on what you're interested in, uh, what you're doing. I mean, of course, you can go back, you can read uh, the great treatises of the fathers on it. You can read, again, the documents of the ecumenical councils where where actual dogmatic definitions are made. That's where we're going to get terms like consubstantiality and stuff like that. So if you want to study the theology of the Trinity, there's lots of resources for it. Again, if you're going to read the church fathers, understand that uh, the tradition forms a a barrier, right, against falsehood. But that barrier, it's less like maybe the great Chinese wall with all its uh, Mm -hmm. straight lines and, uh, you know, clean-cut bricks. It's more like a mountain range. The Mm -hmm. fathers of the church are going to talk about the Trinity in slightly different ways, one from the other. That's right. Uh, Heresy does break upon those great rocks of the fathers, but if you're going to go read about the Trinity uh, from any particular father, you need to know that the language that they use is not going to necessarily be identical with Mm -hmm. another one of the fathers. And so you kind of uh, get, again, just this sense of the Trinity, but it's not going to exhaust the mystery. Honestly, I think the most important thing that we can do is uh, to be worshiping people. That's right. In the, in the end, uh, doxology, which is the worship of the church, I mean, we, we can reduce it to uh, glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, which the church ceaselessly prays. Yep. This is the most important way in which we encounter the Trinity, in which we orient ourselves toward that great mystery. So I would just encourage people to to pray, learn the the prayer language of the church more than anything else if you want to understand the Trinity. Because ultimately, the mystery of the Trinity is not an idea about God, but it is God's own inner life, Mm -hmm. which we are invited to participate in through his gracious gift of salvation to us. So in addition to the prayers of the church, I would add um, what in the West we call the Nicene Creed, 
In the East, you simply call it the Confession of Faith, right? Uh, no, we also do call it the Nicene Creed. Nicene okay. Constantinopolitan Creed. It's the first two councils that elaborate that creed. And absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and if you attend um, Mass in the Western or Eastern Rite, you're mm -hmm. confessing the Nicene Creed every time. So Absolutely. Um, think about what you're saying. Talk to your priests about it. It's not simply an essay. It's It's actually an act of confession, of prayer, of worship. So take those words to heart. Well, Father Daniel, I hope that we have um, shed more light than confusion on this deep <laughs> too, mystery John. and that this blesses our listeners. Indeed. Amen. Thirty Minute Theology is a podcast provided by the missionaries of St. Fatima an apostolate dedicated to catechesis and evangelization. We exist to make the good news of Jesus Christ and the teachings of His Church accessible and understood. To learn more about the missionaries of St. Bettini and to access materials related to this podcast, please visit our website, saintfotini.force.com. The 30-Minute Theology is helpful to you. Please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, and please consider supporting our work. Thank you for joining us.